friends, Jesus is alive. And if there was ever a week that that needed to be more true for me, it was this week. And so we turn to him again today because we have nowhere else to turn. Because he has the words of eternal life. And so we come, like we do each week, to his word, knowing that we're going to be changed by it, knowing that we're going to be, that our hearts are going to grow in our love and affection for Jesus. And so we come to the words of the Sermon on the Mount today with that confident expectation. We've been studying some of the earliest teachings of Matthew, earliest teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and following. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now. And you know, we're going to be talking about some really heavy topics today. We're going to be talking about lust and pornography. We're going to be talking about divorce and remarriage after divorce. And I know that this is going to be really hard for a lot of us, because there's nobody in this room who isn't affected by them. There's a lot of pain there. And as we enter them together, we're going to look to Jesus. We're going to look to him and be reminded that he is enough. Because Jesus never accepted anyone on the basis of their own strength. And Jesus never turned away Jesus never rejected anyone on the basis of their weakness. He wants us to see ourselves as weak so that we can see him as strong. And that's the journey we're going to take today. We're going to go into our own weakness. We're going to plumb the depths of our weakness. But we're also going to plumb the depths of Christ's grace and mercy for us. What we're going to find is that they're equally matched. That there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no sin too deep. That the love of Jesus is all-surpassing. And there's nothing he can't handle. And that's the refrain we're going to sing over and over again today. Is that Christ is enough. You know, for the last several weeks we've been studying this portion of Scripture where Jesus is correcting what we might call a legalistic view of the Old Testament, a legalistic view of the Bible. One that says, if I live up to all of the rules in the Bible, then I'm going to earn the right to be in relationship with God. You know, out of that way of thinking, people, and especially the spiritual leaders of the time, had been looking at the instructions of God in really narrow terms. They'd been asking things like, how far can I go? and not be guilty of breaking that law. They've been asking things like, how little do I have to do and still have it count? And Jesus is showing us here that what God desires from us is a heart full of love, single-minded obedience to Jesus. And we're in this section where I like to think of it as a crescendo where Jesus is giving example after example after example of what he means. Last week we said, if you have anger in your heart, then you're no better off than a murderer. 
This week, we're going to talk about lust and pornography and divorce and remarriage after divorce. And what Jesus is going to say is, these things, these things are ways you might be committing adultery and not knowing it. So what we're going to do as we turn to God's word is we're going to take them one at a time. We're going to look at what he says about lust and then what he looks, look what he has to say about divorce and then remarriage after divorce. And we're going to come back again and again to the refrain that Christ is enough. So if you found the passage for this morning, if you would stand in honor of God's word as I read from us, for us from Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> this is verse 27 and following. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. So let's start out by seeing what Jesus has to say about lust. Let's look at verse 28 again. It says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, no matter what you look like on the outside, if you have lust in your heart, then you are no better off than an adulterer. Let me give you some examples of what that might mean. Not cheating on your spouse is not good enough. You can't want to cheat on your spouse. Not having premarital sex, not good enough. You can't want to have premarital sex. Not looking at pornography, not good enough. You can't want to look at pornography. Here Jesus is saying, if you think your actions are the only thing that God cares about, you've got another thing coming. God cares about our hearts. He cares about the desires of our hearts. And a lustful heart is principally a sin against God. Because lust views people as objects. It views people as being there principally for our satisfaction. And in that way, that is offensive to God because God makes people in his image. And so when we reduce people to sexual objects... We're robbing them of the respect that God gave them when he made them in his image. God cares about our heart. He cares about the desires of our heart. And a lustful heart replaces Jesus as our sole source of comfort and longing. God didn't make us to pine after sex. He made us to be in relationship with him. God didn't make us to find our satisfaction in sex. He made us to find our satisfaction in him. And so when we indulge our lust, what we're giving into is the lie that the short-term bodily pleasure 
is more fulfilling than a deep, everlasting relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're giving into the lie that Jesus isn't enough to satisfy us. And we know, we know that lust can't satisfy us. The second that it's been indulged, it leaves us wanting more. It leaves us ashamed that we even thought that it could satisfy us. Lust means that we have a disordered view, a broken view of what we think will satisfy us. Lust means we think too much of the importance of sexual enjoyment, like we couldn't possibly be living a fulfilled life unless we're sexually fulfilled. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Friends, we are made to find our satisfaction in Jesus and only in Jesus. When we engage in lust, when we indulge in lust, we're just turning our backs on that. You know, I think we probably need to talk about the elephant in the room before we get too far. That's pornography. I think here, I want to start off by saying, Jesus' teaching is very clear. There is no room for pornography in any way, in any shape, in any form, for any reason, ever. I think you need to hear the church say that. We don't say that loud enough. There are so many ways in our minds that we rationalize this. They're kind of too ridiculous to say out loud, actually. But Jesus' teaching is very clear. There's no room for pornography. And before we really get into it, I want to say here that I'm talking to men and women. You know, the idea that our lust or specific forms that our lust take, our gender specific, just isn't true. You know, the national statistics on these sorts of things say that women look at pornography frequently. In fact, um, one survey done by CovenantEyes.com says one in five women regularly look at pornography. That doesn't surprise me at all. So I'm talking to everybody here. Now, as we start talking about it a little more, I actually want to be quick to say, we're not talking about this to pour on the shame. Okay, because chances are, you already know this is a problem. You didn't need me to tell you that. But pornography and lust... They're battles of the mind. And so we have to equip ourselves with the truth in order to fight that battle. Preaching the truth to yourself in the midst of lust and, tempted, and temptation for pornography, those are critical weapons in the fight. And you know, I think one of the main lies that we tell ourselves about pornography in particular is that it's a victimless crime. It's done in private, nobody can see, no harm, no foul. That's just not true. Pornography has victims. It's the people that we objectify. The people that are being objectified are the victims because we're supporting an industry. We're creating a demand for an industry that does not treat its employees well. There's slavery and oppression and pain in that. But it's it's not just the people you objectify. It's the people you love that are hurt by it. I think... One of the main victims of pornography is your spouse. And if you're married, it's your current spouse. And if you're not, one of the main victims of your pornography is your future spouse. I promise you, I promise you that pornography is going to destroy the way that you think about a a healthy sexual relationship. And your spouse is going to be hurt by that. 
both when you confess it to them and as you deal with your broken sense of what sexual intimacy is supposed to be. Pornography and lust are battles of the mind. And so when you're tempted to engage in those things, say to yourself, actually say these words to yourself. Say them out loud. It's okay. This is a person made in God's image. I should give them the respect that God gave them. This is hurting my future wife, my future husband. This shows me that I'm looking to Jesus, or looking to something other than Jesus for my satisfaction. Help me, Jesus, to be satisfied only in you. Say those things to yourself. Lust is a battle of the mind. I also think we need to talk about the other elephant in the room, and that's that lust isn't just about pornography. Lust is clicking on that link that you hope might get you to accidentally see that thing on the side of the web page. Oh, it was just an accident. It doesn't count. Lust is about thinking things that are in your mind, about fantasy. Lust is about looking at people when they walk in the room and focusing on their body parts instead of focusing on their person. Lust is about reading books, romance novels, stories online. Lust is about watching movies that have inappropriate scenes. And no matter the outward manifestation of your lust, what Jesus is challenging us to see here is they all stem from the same disordered desire of our heart. Thinking we can find our satisfaction in something other than Jesus. And instead of realizing that about ourselves, instead of seeing our lust and saying, Jesus, I'm deceiving myself. Help me find satisfaction in you. We convince ourselves that our sin isn't all that bad. I think we do it in two ways. We either try and draw very narrow limits around what Jesus is teaching here, or we try to make ourselves feel better about our sin by looking down on other people's sin. Let me explain what I mean. You know, one of the things the Pharisees did was use the teaching of the Bible in the most narrow ways possible, asking questions like, how far can I go and still be right with God? The way that turns up in lust is things like, how far can I go and not have premarital sex? When does it really become sex? Asking things like, how far can I go and not have it be pornography? I mean, what's pornography anyway? How far can I go and not be lusting? You should be honest with yourself. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever tried to push the limit of what Jesus is teaching here? I think that's the same thing the Pharisees were guilty of, minimizing the force of what Jesus was teaching so they'd be able to do what they wanted to. Don't be confused. Jesus is calling us to a wholehearted, single-minded love for and devotion to him. And anywhere else we look, including the lustful desires of our hearts, means that we don't love God with our whole hearts like we thought we did. You know, I think in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is also correcting the tendency to look down on people who have different sin patterns than we do. Our tendency to make ourselves feel better by looking down on others. The way that sounds most often, I think, is um, what I call at least I don'ts. You know, No matter how bad I am, 
I'm not as bad as you are because at least I don't do this, right? I mean, sure, I occasionally watch a movie that I shouldn't, but at least I don't look at pornography. I mean, I occasionally look at pornography, but at least I don't masturbate. At least I haven't had premarital sex. I mean, sure, I've had premarital sex, but at, at least I'm not on Tinder. It's a lie. That kind of thinking is a lie. It minimizes the severity of your lust. Jesus is calling us to recognize that at the heart of all forms are lust, of lust are the same disordered desires to find our satisfaction in something else. And we just can't afford to use the cultural conceptions of what's okay in a sexual relationship to determine if we're okay or not. We can't look at other people to determine if that's okay. We have to submit ourselves to the standard that Jesus is setting for us today. One where our thoughts, our desires, and our actions are all, are all totally devoted to God. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I told you that we'd be coming back to the refrain that Christ was enough, and I'm going to stay true to that promise. Because the good news is that Jesus has paid the penalty. He took your place. He bore your guilt and your shame. And I'm talking to you. You know, I think when we make these comparisons about how much better or worse our sin is, we can do that to make ourselves feel better, but we can also do that to make our feel, ourselves feel so much worse. My sin is too bad to bring to light. Nobody, I don't really believe that if I brought myself, if some people really knew me, that I'd be accepted. My sin's just too bad. And I think that way of thinking takes away from the finished work of Christ. He went to the cross to die. He didn't deserve it. And on the cross, he endured the wrath of God to purchase you. Who do we think we are to say that his sacrifice wasn't big enough for us, for me, for my sin? The point is that Jesus knew you before you were born. He knows you now better than you know yourself. He knows your deepest, darkest pain that you would never speak aloud, let alone tell somebody else about. And Jesus died for you anyway. He didn't die for you despite your sin. He died for you because of your sin. No other reason, for no other reason than that he loved you. So we turn to him claiming that he's enough. Now, I know that there are people who are sitting in this room right now who are living in darkness, for whom the pain and shame of your sin, and in particular your sexual sin, 
is just too much to bear. And you sit in darkness, afraid to speak the truth of your sin out loud because you're afraid that we will reject you. You're afraid that Jesus will reject you. And so my urgent plea, I don't, I don't know how to change my voice in the right way to make this urgent enough for you. Please bring your sin to the light. Do not live in darkness. Darkness and secrecy are lies that the devil used to keep us from experiencing the freedom that is ours in Christ. We hide in the darkness and we're alone and we tell ourselves that nobody could ever understand us and there's no healing here and that is just not true. After years of seeing people hide their sin, I'm telling you, no matter what the consequences are, it is always better to bring it to the light. There's going to be pain. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. When you bring your sin to light, it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt people around you but it was doing that anyway. It was doing that anyway. And until you bring your sin to light, there cannot be healing. There cannot be the hope that's found in Christ. You just won't ever taste that freedom the way you can when you're hiding in darkness. So please, I don't know what your journey is going to be like if that's you and you're bringing your sin. I don't know what's happened, but I promise you, I will go with you. I promise you there will be people in this room who will go with you too. So if that's you, and you feel like your sin, your lust, your repeated failures at pornography, your premarital sex, your extramarital affairs, you think those things disqualify you from being in relationship with God? You think your sin is just too bad? think you're right. They do. But what they don't do, what that kind of sin doesn't do is disqualify you from receiving the unmerited and free gift of grace that is ours in Jesus. Jesus has never refused someone on the basis of their weakness when he comes to them in faith and repentance. Like Matt said before, Jesus came for the sick. What do you see when you look around this place, I wonder? I want you to be honest with yourself. Do you see a place where everybody has it all together? Like these people pretend like they've got it all together? That's not what I see. It's not because I know myself. And because I know you. Friends, this place is a hospital. It's a hospital, and it smells of pain and suffering. It smells of failure at fighting sin. It smells of defeat and hopelessness. It's full of people who have lust in their hearts. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You think you're too far 
from grace to receive it? Those who are furthest from grace, those who are dead in their sin, those are the people who are most fit to receive the grace of Jesus. He has never refused anyone on the basis of their weakness when we come to him in repentance and faith. He is enough, even for you. Now, before we move on to what Jesus has to say about divorce, he teaches us something else about lust. And in particular, he gets real serious about how we battle our lust. How do we protect ourselves from it? Read what he says in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Cut off the temptation before it happens. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. We're supposed to be radical about protecting ourselves from lust. That's part of what's happening here. But I think really what it means is cut it off before it happens. If your eye is the thing that causes you to sin, then cut it out. If your hand is the thing that causes you to sin, then cut it off. Don't even put yourself in a position of being able to be tempted to these things. I want to get really practical here. I think one of the ways that we have to do that is we have to identify our patterns. What are the situations we put ourselves in? What are the emotions that we feel when we're most susceptible to these kinds of lust? Is it when you're tired? Is it when you're angry? Is it when you're feeling the shame, the burden of your sin? Is it when you're bored? Is it when you're traveling? Is it when you feel all macho, like you deserve somebody else? In order to cut off sin at the source, you have to know when you're tempted to engage in it. That's the first step. And then we're given two really practical things to help us in this battle. Lust is the battle of the mind. And we're given community. We're given the people in this room to fight that battle. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about how we battle it in our own minds. So first, our community. You know, I think this is on us. I think we have to be a community that makes bringing sin to light something that's common and something where there's no judgment that comes with it. We have to be a people who walk like that, who talk like that, who don't judge people for being sinners. You know, I think when people confess sin, one of the things they're most afraid about is being rejected being rejected by people and by being rejected by Jesus. And we have the chance in that moment to show them that they're not going to be rejected by Jesus. We have the chance to show them in that moment the love that Christ showed to us. It's on us to be a people who show mercy and kindness and graciousness. But I actually think that's kind of hard to do, especially when you're confronted with something that seems a little shocking to you. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone has confessed a sin that you were a little... You didn't know what to say. You were taken back by it. I read this book uh, by Sam Albury a few, I guess a year ago or so. He gave this really great approach to handling difficult situations like that. So I'm just going to, it's been really helpful for me. I'm going to share it with you. He said, when somebody says something to you when you don't know what to say, start out by saying this. Thanks for sharing that with me. I know how hard it must have been for you to say that. 
I want you to know that I still love you. And then you ask them a question. What was it that made you decide to share that with me today? Gosh, how long have you been struggling with that? It could be just as simple as, tell me more about it. That is a way that you can show the mercy of Christ when you're confronted with something and you don't know what to say. By the way, that has to do with more than just lust. You can use that in any. That's a free gift. You guys go ahead and use that one. Anytime. You know, I, I think that this um, actually goes both ways, too. Because when you're the person who's confessing a sin, the chances are the person you're talking to isn't going to get it totally right. You know, I think they may sit there quietly when you want them to say something because they don't know what to say. They may change the subject and start talking about something that seems trivial to you because they don't want to make you feel badly. They want to they move on quickly. They might pull out their Bible and start reading the truth to you, trying to encourage you. And all you're hearing is condemnation. Friends, I think there's a pretty good chance that no matter who the person is you're talking to, they're not going to get it exactly, perfectly right because they're not Jesus either. And so I think when we are a community that brings sin to light, there's got to be grace on both sides. The person who is, who is the friend being confessed to and the person who is doing the confessing. Show each other mercy in that. And then before I move on, I just want to say one other thing, and this is to our small group leaders. I wonder when the last time you really asked the people about lust and sexual sin was in your community group. I especially want to ask that of the women, small group leaders. When was the last time you looked at every woman in the eye and said, when was the last time you looked at pornography? I think we've got to be a place that takes sin seriously. And I think our small groups are one place that we can do that. Okay, so how do we battle lust? We do it in community. That's a gift. And we do it in our minds. So first, as we talk about the battle that rages in our minds, I want to acknowledge that temptation and sin are different things. Martin Luther has this great analogy, it's been really helpful to me, of birds circling in the air, and that a temptation is like when a bird lands on your head. What we want to do is make sure that they don't nest there. Right? So if it's okay for a bird to land on your head, you just got to shoo it away as quickly as you can. So then the question is, how do we shoo the lustful thoughts away? How do we identify them? Shoo them away so they don't take up nest in our minds. John Piper really helped me here a few years ago. He gave this great sermon. And what he said is, you have three seconds to identify that a thought is lustful. Really practical. And then he said, once you do, say no. It's okay. I've been walking down the street before. No. (laughs) People just thought I was on my cell phone. No. This is a lustful thought that's dishonoring to God. And then what you do is you replace it with something more glorious. You replace it with the word of God because you cannot be meditating on the word of God and indulging lustful thoughts at the same time. It's not possible. So one of those birds lands on your head. No! I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's no room for lust there. Or maybe 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That's how you fight the battle of lust in your mind. Friends, lust represents a desire for satisfaction in something other than God. And lust and pornography hurt people. They hurt the people we objectify. They hurt the people we love. And in our lust, we make ourselves feel better by looking down on others. In our lust, we try to justify what we do by asking, how far can I go before I really cross the threshold of lust? And none of those things, not one of those things, lives up to the standard of wholehearted, single-minded love for and devotion to Jesus that we're called to. But Christ is enough. And we come to him in faith and repentance. And like we heard in, in the passage from Micah this morning, he delights to give us mercy. So, I have gotten carried away. And we still have to talk about divorce and remarriage. So just buckle up. We're going to be a few minutes. Dave said he threatened that if I went too long, he's just going to start playing. Like at the Oscars? So hopefully we'll have a few minutes before that happens. You know, one of the other ways that Jesus says we might be committing adultery and not knowing it is by having lust in our hearts. The other way is by divorce. Matthew 5.32, look at it. It says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So to really understand what Jesus is saying here about divorce, we have to start with what he means by marriage. Marriage is a gift given by God. It's given to people before sin entered the world. It's meant for one man and one woman. And it is ordained by God, and it is the perfect picture of how Christ loves the church. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. We won't have time to read that today because I went too long. Read it later today. I'd be glad to talk about it with you. Christ loves his people like a husband loves a wife. He gave himself up for her. There's a total commitment, an unfailing devotion, a faithfulness there. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What he means there is that what God joins together, you don't have the authority to change. God joined you. You don't have the right to become unmarried in God's eyes. There's only one thing that nullifies the covenant of marriage, and that's death. So the reason that divorce is so offensive to God is that it destroys the God-given picture of how Christ loves his church, and Christ will never Divorce his church. Look what else it says in verse 32. It says, Whoever marries a divorced woman 
commits adultery. We're at the same, really the heart of the same idea. That if you're married in God's eyes, then an earthly divorce doesn't change that. So remarrying someone is the same as committing adultery. Now I have to say that is a really difficult burden to bear. Because it means that we could realistically be saying to someone who was divorced where no reconciliation was possible, that you are called to live a life of celibacy, that you're called to live a life without being remarried. I don't say that lightly. I don't think Jesus did either. Listen to what he says in Matthew 19. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of of the kingdom of heaven. It's possible that God is calling you to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. I think that sounds hard to us. I think when we think about that, we see God as sort of an unconnected, disconnected dictator. But he's not. He's your father in heaven, and he loves you. And the reason he puts the line in the sand here is because that's how big of a deal marriage is. It's the picture of how he loves his people. I'll also say, if that's the particular burden you're called to this morning, that it's not bigger than the burden Christ bore for you. He went to the cross and died for you. And when we pick up our cross to follow him, it means we have to die to ourselves. It means we have to die to all of ourselves, and that might mean what you had in mind for sexual fulfillment or even being married. Christ is enough, even for that. Now, you might be wondering about the exception that Jesus gives here about sexual infidelity, what he calls fornication or sex outside of marriage. In that case, I believe the New Testament teaches that it's within the rights of the person who's been cheated on to ask for a divorce. Notice here it's not commanded by Jesus. It doesn't automatically nullify the marriage covenant like death does. And I believe that reconciliation is possible. Even in the midst of these terrible situations. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us. But there are certain circumstances where divorce happens for what Jesus calls our hardness of heart. It wasn't made that way from the beginning. That's not how God intended it. But because of our sin, God made a provision for divorce in the cases of sexual immorality. Now, if that part of Scripture is really challenging for you, I want you to know that it's actually the weight of the New Testament teaching. I've given you the verses in the um, worship guide today uh, on the relevant passages. You can go ahead and look to those later. be glad to have a conversation with you about them. It's also important for me to tell you that Trinity doesn't have a specific policy about this. We have guiding principles that are based in the Bible, and we take each case on a case-by-case basis. And we always encourage reconciliation when possible. And I just don't feel like I can get into any more details than that today because there are a million what-ifs. Every case is unique. And for every example I gave you, you could come up with a perfectly good reason that it should be handled in the exact opposite way. God help us as we try to uh, apply these principles 
for these situations. Now, as we finish, I want to just talk to several groups of people here because I know divorce and remarriage after divorce is a really painful subject, and it's one that touches, I think, probably everybody in this room. So the first is to someone who currently finds themselves in a dangerous situation, one where abuse is happening. I want you to know that I don't think this passage calls you to stay in that situation. I think you need to leave. And I think for certain periods of time, periods of separation are necessary, especially when safety is involved. Until, anybody, until everybody is safe, there's no way reconciliation happens. If that's you this morning, then please come talk to us. We would be glad to help. The next group I want to talk to is people who are considering divorce. What I would say to you is that reconciliation is possible. Jesus is big enough to heal your marriage, even though it might not seem like that right now. I would say to you that your marriage is bigger than you. Your marriage is about how Jesus loves his church. I'd say to you, your marriage is bigger than right now. Sometimes it's hard to see past the right now, hard to see into the healing, but it's possible. Jesus is enough. I want to talk to people who've been divorced. I'd say to you, this doesn't define you. Your divorce doesn't define you. I believe all sin is forgivable. I'd remind you about what we talked about earlier, that you don't need sex. You don't need marriage to be fulfilled. We're made to find our satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't want to talk to people who love those who've been divorced. Friends, I think we're meant to see people who've been divorced like Christ would see them, with hearts of mercy and kindness and patience and forgiveness. Know that there's pain there and that your loved ones don't need your condemnation. They need you to bear with them in their pain. Point them to reconciliation. And do that by pointing them to Jesus. And I think that's especially true if someone is not a believer in that situation. If one or both people aren't believers, I don't think reconciliation in a marriage is possible outside of Christ. Remember, remember, their marriage is critical. But what's more critical is the state of their souls. And so it might be that to find reconciliation first, we need to show people who Jesus is and bring them to faith in him. Now, the final group of people that I want to talk to, especially, is children. Children of parents who are going through a divorce or who have been divorced. What I'd say to you is you can't bear the burden of bringing reconciliation to your parents' marriage. You see their sin in a really unique way, and I think that causes us to want to preach the gospel to them in a really unique way. We feel that burden. And it is your responsibility to speak truth to them. It is your responsibility to encourage them to seek counseling, to seek the counsel of the church. But you are just as hurt by this as they are. 
And that means you are not in the position to ask the kinds of questions that need to be asked. You're not in the kind of position to speak the truth that needs to be spoken. A daughter should never have to ask her father the kinds of questions that need to be asked in moments like that. You just can't bear that burden. I think also you're probably not regularly involved in accountability for your parents for their sin. I don't think now's a good time to start. You know, I think the burden of children in these moments is to love their parents like Christ loved them. And that is hard enough. So, we are in fact coming to a close. I promise. And I think it's time for a reality check. Because when we come face to face, when we see intimately what Jesus is calling us to in wholehearted love for and obedience to him, I think we ask questions like, can I really have victory over lust? Can I really find healing in this broken marriage? Can I really bear a life of celibacy without being married again? I think those are natural questions to ask. But like I've said from the beginning, do not despair because Christ is enough. And while I don't think perfection is possible this side of heaven, what I do think is possible is enduring victory over sin. Let me say that again. What I know is possible is enduring victory over sin. What I know is possible is joy in obedience to Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are no longer defined by your passions, by your desires when you are in Christ. When you have faith in Jesus, you're given a new heart with new desires. And so in Christ, you can find the power to have victory over sin. In Christ, you can have the power to find joy in following him. God help us. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, you delight to give us mercy. You abound in steadfast love from generation to generation. You are faithful to hear the cries of your people, of your children. You are faithful never to reject us on the basis of our weakness. You hear the cries of the humble of heart. Help us, Father, to see more clearly the cross of Jesus. Help us, Father, to see more clearly the new life that is promised to us in him. Father, forgive us. May our sin be remembered no more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.